Hello, lizard people. Unfortunately, we had a bit of a mishap this week, so you'll have to wait a while to hear us discuss William Gibson's The Peripheral, for which we do sincerely apologize. But we did have a bit of luck recovering one of the lost tapes from our warehouse fire, so instead we bring you our discussion of Andy Weir's The Martian, a story about a man, a planet, and a bunch of potatoes. Enjoy. You know that a man dies if he loses five pints of blood. The time is now. The place is the space between your ears. The people are lizards, dissecting the finest in science fictional and fantastical literature for all your auditory pleasures. You are now listening to Lizard People, Dear Readers. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers, the science fiction and fantasy book club about science fiction and fantasy books. So uh, I'm George Chimples and I'm here with, I am in fact George Chimples. I'm also Nathan Edwards and Peter Paris and uh, this is another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers. I'm also joined by two terrible people whose names I don't know. I'm uh... Octavio Laflambert. That's awful. So that's actual Nathan Edwards. Nowhere near as good as fake Nathan Edwards. No. And Peter Paris? I am Edgar Allan Poe's second cousin, Chester Allan Poe. <laughs> Accurate statement. So this is our fifth episode, if nothing goes wrong, and I can't ensure that it won't, in which we will be discussing The Martian by... Martin Weir? Andy Weir. Andy Weir. <laughs> Andy Weir. I don't know who Martin Weir is. Probably his second cousin. I know Matt Weir in Northwestern. True. True story. Which was chosen for us by Peter Paris. Uh, the Martian came out in 2000-something or other. It's about a guy on Mars. And uh, maybe Peter would like to give us a bit of a plot summary and introduction. Yeah, the novel we've been working on reading? Mm-hmm. Read, read yeah, a little book there. Yeah. yeah. All right, so The Martian. If you uh, direct your attention to the Wikipedia page, which you by no means have to do, because I'm going to tell you what tell you about it, uh, is a book by Andy Weir. When he first tried to get this book published back in 2011, nobody wanted it, so he put it up on his website, where he uh, developed a cult following and later got uh, some traction on Amazon, and then decided, or then got himself a uh, more traditional publisher, and the rest is history, <clears throat> and also movie rights. The book is about astronauts Mark Watney uh, and company, and Mark's problem is that he has been stranded on the planet Mars, and so uh, the book is about his various efforts to not die on Mars and hopefully make it back to Earth. Correct. 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, there's anything else to say about it. Um, a lot of attention to detail to the uh, science in this book. Trying to keep it more realistic. I uh, was not writing notes on the side whenever I saw something inaccurate, so, you know. I was writing notes on the side, but not because of that. <laughs> Interesting. So Nathan yeah. seems like he has strong ideas about this book. Yes, so so does. let's start off with that. Uh, Nathan, what did you think? Uh, well, as is often the case, I enjoyed the plot uh, to a fair degree. I think that the concept is a good one. Um, the yeah, most of the actual science seems fairly uh, plausible. Uh, and I enjoyed his resourcefulness, even though it was very like, oh, well, I happen to be the only one on the team who could possibly have survived because I'm an engineer and uh, I have potatoes. And... The, the engineer botanist combination yeah, is more yeah, than yeah. unusual. Um, but what I, I don't know, should we talk about, uh, I don't know if we want to get into this now or later. My uh, the, the NASA parts of the equation, I didn't think held true. Uh, they, they seemed a little off to me, uh, certain aspects of it. And also, literally every time anybody talked to or mentioned a woman, they either had to be sexist at her, to her, or mention something, uh, flaw in her personality, especially to her face, or objectify her. There was literally not one instance in which a woman is treated like a normal human being in this entire book. And it's really, really? weird. Uh, what about the publicist? What about the commander? Yeah. I read this a couple weeks ago, so I mean, this might be fresher in your mind, Nathan. Yeah. But go ahead. I mean, I read this a couple, like a month ago, maybe. Um, yeah, the commander's a woman, but is, is the commander Johansson, or is that somebody else? No, that is... Johansson's a mission specialist. The commander is Lewis. I don't think I ever... Well, okay. Let me... Let me uh, Slightly refrain. Apparently, Lewis was treated like a normal human being because I had no idea Lewis was female. Uh, or I can't remember Lewis being female. But like Johansson, literally every time she's mentioned, it's, you're so hot, how come you're a scientist? Do you know how many teenage boys have jerked off over your mission poster? Hor, 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 hor. How'd you even get up here? And then people talking to her and she's blushing. And then like, what, what's the name of the girl who discovers him on the, on the satellites? At one point. I forget her name. Let me see if I can pull up this passage. Um, also, everyone at NASA has a name like Mitch or Teddy or Ralph or Fred or like just it's like if you if you had to pick the most parodic white bread sixties mission control Houston names possible, they would they all make the appearance. Point of fact, Nathan, as someone who has actually worked in the aerospace industry, everyone has names like that. <laughs> to be and I'd also point out one of the characters. I mean. There's also Venkat Kapoor. Yes. Was one of the main guys outside of NASA, so he's not... I mean, I don't know. They don't really get an ethnicity and stuff in this one, but he's not a Ralph. No, no he's the one non-Ralph. But he is an Indian guy. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, he can't have a name like Ralph, or yeah. can he? For me... This is, I mean, a lot of people have described it kind of as Robinson Crusoe on Mars or, um, you know, Robinson Crusoe meets Apollo Robinson 13. Robinson Crusoe on Mars, apparently a movie in 1964, by the way. Yeah, that's crazy. Huh. Um, but so a lot of, you know, you spend a lot of time with Mark. And so broadly brushing on some of the plot strokes is 
he's left for dead by his crew that his his suit gets punctured his life signs are gone and he survives because they have to leave they they have to leave the surface believing he's dead due to a sandstorm he finds he's alive he knows that the soonest he can expect recovery is in something like 500 600 days he only has enough food for 400 he's well, able to has food, yeah for like even less right yeah something like that it, it, yeah, i'm like just glossing over this is this is very yeah. broad and so through being a right. having some botany and, and mechanical background he's able to repair good portions of his habitat he's able to fix the broken radio salvaging some radio stuff from um previous martian landers and rovers which is how he starts being able to communicate with mission control on earth and um his his partners in space and then you know they start trying to figure out ways to rescue him and he's able to grow some potatoes and various things happen and i mean that's basically it but so it's very very focused on the hows and whys of survival there's although it's all from almost all from mark's perspective there's very little philosophizing or internal thought it's all about well first i hooked this thing up to that thing and then i did this thing over here i planted this thing up oh, this thing broke now i'm going to do this chemical process and record this thing yeah it's mostly the only thing i have to listen to is disco <laughs> yeah and there's almost no psychology in it and so i i don't know how fair it is to be upset that it didn't portray the extremely secondary and tertiary characters with any kind of depth because the main character who we spend you know 300 pages with has almost no depth whatsoever and so everybody's treated broadly there's the female satellite um person one of the female mission specialists and they're both kind of i don't remember being totally disturbed by it but both of them are kind of geeky and shy and they're both kind of being called out for being geeky and shy but there's also the female um public relations person who's noted for being hard edge and i think she's the one who's also giving the geeky girl a little bit of trouble at some point although i may be misremembering that and then the female captain so i don't know if i, I actually think with... i think it was the nasa administrator who was giving her a hard time yeah but he was giving it was established that he was was that mitch yeah i'd like to read yeah, everybody... no mitch, mitch, mitch is the head of the astronaut program it was the uh it was the other guy right Maybe it was Mitch. I don't remember. But Mitch gave everybody a hard time. Point, so point, I don't know. Point being, yeah, the guy who was, I thought the guy who was giving her a hard time was the hard ass, but it could have been, the public relations lady could have been giving her a hard time too. Yeah. Um, they both gave various people hard times, but I don't think it's fair to necessarily tart as being sexist per se. Definitely broad, but everybody's broad in this. Like the, this book was not interested in people's internal realities at all. Well, I was going to comment on that because that's the interesting part because everything you know about Mark Watney is from a first-person perspective. So it's all his logs that he's recorded. Yeah. Almost everything you see from people who aren't Mark Watney, it's all from an actual, it's all from, you know, actually inside their head. Yeah. Not that, they, not that it goes into, you know, a lot more depth, but it's interesting in having that perspective shift where your main character is the one who you really have very little insight into what's going on with him well and, and i yeah. think you're right a lot of it is the, the sure the characterization is pretty shallow for the most part 
and I'm not saying this as a as a pejorative. I think it's I I mean it mostly as an observation. But there's a part I want to read a passage that made me laugh out loud that I think will give people an idea of kind of what the book kind of sounds like. And this this cracked me up. Um so he's he's about to shut down the hab and then exit on this long range mission to get to another place on Mars where he's going to be picked up. So he says, "Once I'd shut everything down, the interior of the hab was eerily silent. Silent. I'd spent 449 souls listening to its heaters, vents, and fans, but now it was dead quiet. It's a creepy kind of quiet that's hard to describe. I've been away from the noises of the hab before, but always in a rover or an Eva suit, both of which have noisy machinery of their own. But there was nothing. I never realized how utterly silent Mars is. It's a desert world with practically no atmosphere to convey sound. I could hear my own heartbeat. Anyway, enough waxing philosophical. I'm in the rover now. And so, like, that's that's about as deep as it ever yeah. gets. <laughs> and it's like, wow, Mars is really quiet. Well, that's enough philosophy. And this is a guy who, again, has been on his own for, at this point in the story, over 449 days. Um, that's more than a year. And when you read about people who are in solitary confinement or in prison camps or in solitude, they tend to go a little bit strange. And this book does not address that at all. No. It's not interested in addressing that at all, which I think is fine. I just think it's really interesting. I think I just think it's an interesting choice. Yeah, I think, I mean, they, they almost immediately, all of his log entries are very informal and very relaxed. Like not what mm-hmm. I would imagine somebody who had gone through astronaut training making an official log would sound like at all. Um, um I don't know about that. But, well, you probably know better than I do. But, um... That maybe that's that's Andy's way of saying, well, he's just he's got such a rich inner, you know, he's such a fun guy, so resourceful. Maybe he doesn't have time to go crazy. Maybe, but yeah, I, I agree that there was no, there was no like, I mean, other than a few like, I'm really tired of disco and Three's Company. Like, yeah, there was no. I haven't talked to anyone in literally years. None of that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I mean, for me, um. It's a definite choice on the on the part of the author, and I usually like pretty deep character studies. And in this one, they don't even I don't think there's even any hints of utter cutting it. Like you see, like there's no epilogue where it you know deals with him and he's haunted by his experiences. There's no sense that they're playing around with this idea of him being loose for the logs and then um, secretly you know upset off of it there's there's absolutely none of that i think it's it's pretty straightly played i kind of viewed it as being almost like this perfect engineer's book where it's just all about mechanical solutions to problems and mathematics handled well (laughs) handled entertainingly. yeah it seemed like an engineer fantasy yeah yeah i mean i think i would definitely characterize it as an engineering fantasy which is not i I think the peter being an engineer i think i was going to try out the phrase competence porn which (laughs) is entirely too much these days but it's pretty much exactly what's going on. It's people who know their who know what they're doing, going about you know solving problems and, and doing it well with their expertise. Yeah, he never gets switched dealing with roadblocks. Yeah, which is a big subgenre in science fiction, really. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's a lot of it's a lot of stuff out there. I mean, you get the heroic space crew who goes and save the day. You know, it's not always about them. At least not historically, it hasn't been about them. You know philosophizing and you know having deep meaningful interactions with each other yeah and i think you know um this this being in more of like the you know more classic sci-fi veins and sci-fi veins since these days it's a little bit more uh literary i think it can be yeah 
It can be. It can yeah, it's be. not You're as pulpy. Right. But it has its moments. <laughs> you know, very much is the same tonally to Apollo 13. And Apollo 13, you know, takes place over a couple of weeks or however long it is, maybe a couple yeah. days. But, um, you know, it's just based on solutions, finding solutions to problems, finding roadblocks. And, you know, Apollo 13, there's not a lot of, oh, woe is me or anything like that because they didn't have time well, for that. But here they had I think time. Apollo, I think Apollo 13... The, the counterpoint to the astronauts that made that work a little bit better, I think, was that you had the families and the people at home who were having the strong emotional reaction to what was going on. And you get a bit of that here, too, because I think that's that's where the most emotional parts are, is from the people on the ground, who are the ones who sometimes have to make decisions about whether they can risk this thing or that thing on Mark's rescue, and trying to balance... I mean, any kind of emotional drama comes from those scenes when they're trying to figure out what the worth of one man's life is. Um, I, I did think uh, those scenes actually had some of the worst writing in the entire uh, book. Mm-hmm. If, if I may, I'd like to read from one of two highlighted passages. <laughs> Why Mindy, Mitch asked. She noticed he was alive in the first place. She gets a promotion because she was in the hot seat and the imagery came through. No, Venkat frowns. She gets a promotion because she figured out he was alive. Stop being a jerk, Mitch. You're making her feel bad. Mitch raised his eyebrows. Didn't think of that. Sorry, Mindy. Mindy looked at the table and managed to say, okay. That's that's really strong emotional writing. I, I really like that. That's great character. No, but there's there's other parts that are better than that. I mean, that's... No, I mean, I highlighted it because it was terrible. Yeah. But I don't think the whole book is like that. There's certain parts that, that where they're talking that are better than that, I think. Um, but the, the other thing, going back to an earlier point where we were talking about I think you said it, Nathan, where he's so focused on survival, he doesn't have time to be depressed or upset, I think is something that maybe they're doing in the book. Like, that's why we don't get a lot of internal stuff from him. And then also, a lot of astronauts tend to be ex-military or or still military, still Air Force. And I don't think that's in his background. They don't go much into his background other than he lived in Chicago at some point. I think it's. I think he made. I think he pointed out at some point that he wasn't military in contrast to like the commander, and I think one of the other people who was. Yeah, I think that's true. But that if you're in NASA dealing with military people who are in command who are piloting, some of that attitude will kind of rub off on you. And there's this great. Oh, yeah. There's no, this great there's, part that's very widespread, like even outside of NASA. Yeah, yeah. And there's this. There's this great moment in. Um, the right stuff, you know, Tom Wolfe's story, Tom Wolfe's book about the beginning of the space program in the United States. And it kind of opens with him talking about the reason why commercial airline pilots all affect kind of a weird Southern drawl is because at a certain point, everyone in the, everyone in aviation and, and most people who fly commercial airlines, you know, were trained in the military that came out of the Air Force and things like that. All they wanted to sound like was Chuck Yeager. And that's how Chuck Yeager sounds is this kind of weird Mm -hmm. drawl and that they also affect this. You know, if you listen to like black boxes and stuff, they're not screaming and ranting in the cockpit. They're just kind of, well, yep, looks like we got a little fire in the engine over there. We got to, you know, try and put that one out. Got to fix that one. And they, you know, it's a very purposeful pose they're actually putting on. And uh, Well, it's Chuck Yeager. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that maybe he's you know, kind of internalized that. And so it's like this. Steely-eyed missile men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steely-eyed missile men. And, um, you know, so maybe part of his personality is he's supposed to be easygoing. I mean, that's from the text, but maybe also, you know, 
I accepted this as an in, you know, an unspoken but in storyline reason for why he was never, you know, angsting over his lot in life other than being, you know, kind of frustrated. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, up to a point, it would have been nice to have a little bit more of an internal view, assuming that, you know, it could have been put in there reasonably well. Well, porn's mm-hmm. not supposed to be but realistic. I mean, it could easily <laughs> go overboard with that kind of thing, I think. Because, I mean, yeah. how do you fit, you know, 300 days of philosophizing into a book without having him have some kind of revelation. Well, the thing is, I could have... And, and this is this is all just me observ- observing. I enjoyed this book. I thought it was fun and light and moved. And I, I'm not a very mathematically-minded person. I'm not really an engineering person. But I liked the solutions. I was able to understand them. Um, and the stuff that I didn't understand or was a little bit too mathematical i could just kind of gloss over it for you know a paragraph and move on to the next thing without missing too much so i liked that but i think you could also do one where someone's trapped in space that's just all internal stuff thinking about man's place in the universe and solitude and colonization and survival and you could do a really deep heavy mental novel with the exact same premise and this author just chose to go a different way and i just think that's kind of an interesting thing to look at is you know this is a character that's almost all plot almost no characterization, even as you're dealing with one character. But, you know, you can do it so many different ways. Yeah. Well, and the one thing I, w- I was going to, one other thing I was going to point out about with the way that they'd done the, how everything from Mark's perspective was basically in his logs. It's kind of like the, um, the same feeling I got with <clears throat> Dracula when I read it, if that makes sense, since that's also kind of delivered from like a, uh, you know, a collection of journal notes and diaries and recordings and newspaper clippings. But it's not always easy to see what's going on with the characters behind the screen. And it's never entirely clear to me whether, you know, it feels like... And, you know, some people can do this better than others, but it's never entirely clear whether there's, you know, an actual person back there or whether it's just screening screening out you know the fact that no one really felt like attributing some kind of personality to this character yeah that's interesting well, that was that was the problem i had you know going through that one the first time just granted that was you know significantly younger than how old were you the first time you read dracula what was it the first time on dracula middle school middle school man it's a pretty short book. I, I should say that um, although every time I ran, every literally every time, the fact that every time that they mention or talk about a woman, it's to insult or patronize her, got really immersion breaking to the point where I made a note of every time it happened. Other than that, I really liked the confidence porn. I liked the the storyline. I liked the book overall, but there were just a few just like really bothersome aspects, I guess that prevented I, me from enjoying I, it as much as I could now. I disagree though, because I, I really fundamentally disagree with you emphasizing that this every single time women were brought up as sexists. Cause I don't think it was. And the satellite girl, Mindy is her name mm-hmm. was chastised for being a bit shy, but there's the male, um, Orbit guy is also portrayed as being very socially awkward. And Mindy is really good at her job. And she's also very competent if we're talking about Sorry, the people are sexist, not the writing. 
I mean, some of the people, sure. I mean, that didn't leap out at me, but I think that, you know, Mindy, she does a lot of the stuff that keeps Mark alive and, you know, keeps track of where he is and what he's doing and is the first one to break the news that he's alive, which is fairly significant. Well, but, I mean, to Nathan's point, there were a couple of moments that really kind of, I mean, they they struck me this the same way a little bit. I think you were particularly talking about the the letter to Johansson at the end. Yeah. Where he's talking about, you know, being the being the poster up on little kids or on boys' walls. Yeah, and, that was a little uh, gross. That was a little gross. Tell them all their mothers and sisters are whores. That was another line. Uh, I'm being rescued by a gay probe because it has a rainbow on it. Um, yeah, I mean, Mark is definitely Mark's sense of humor is very broy. Um. And sometimes that bothered me and sometimes it didn't. Like when they said, there's a bit where he's communicating with NASA for the first time and they're like, Mark, watch your language. Be careful. You know, the whole world's seeing this and he types out boobs. I thought that's, you know, kind of worth a chuckle and not too bad. But the, well, I mean, like, like I said, kind of so, some stuff was fine. Some stuff wrong a little bit. False or like odd, odd to my ear. Yeah. That's a little, all. pushing a little the, bit too much. Like a little, the, t- the tone forced. just seemed a little bit off of the character I'd gotten put together in my head. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Sometimes it seemed like gratuitously just plastered in there because he thought he needed to put somebody a little like he needed to add it in there. I couldn't tell if it was like added in on purpose as a commentary or just like part of Andy Weir's worldview. I don't know. I don't think there's much commentary in this. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I I, I I don't think there's a lot of subtext in this book. Honestly, um, I didn't. Like you say, if if anything, it might be that NASA needs more money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since the first thing they think about when uh, they haven't, but the second thing they think about when they find out they have an astronaut stranded on Mars is, you know, do we have enough money to save him, or are we going to have to leave him up there to die because Congress can't figure anything out? I mean, the answer is yeah. They would have in real life. They probably would have had that. Well, I don't know. Do you oh. think this could happen in real life? Like, I think the odds of him making it through that kind of a situation yeah. to begin with would be vanishingly remote yeah um so many things i don't i don't think the first time we're going to go to mars we're going to have a nice convenient way to bring you back after a month so it'll be more like six months so uh you know after that i'm not sure if bugging out because there's a sandstorm is really a viable option and who who on earth plans who literally on earth plans a mars mission that can't stand up to a sandstorm I don't think that's it necessarily seems like a plot a poor point. Choice, that's... But I mean, you know, there's always going to be the you know upper limit of how far you can really plan for a sandstorm. Sure. Yeah. Dust storm. Weather's unpredictable. And part part of it, this is supposed to be the third mission, I believe. And so they'd landed people there before, and they had this whole yeah. system of how they dealt with the orbits, and they had a ship that stayed in space that would kind of go back and forth and refuel things. Uh, and... It was it was kind of the Mars Express method, I think. Yeah. If you guys know what that is yeah um Watch granted, I, I think they have uh well the mars express would be a uh idea i think put forward by robert zubrin and uh among other things that it <clears throat> you know that that mission plan involves that showed up in this book or you know making your fuel while you're there uh sending a couple of smaller robotic missions ahead to prepare the way for the you know human humans <laughs> and uh there was that i think the um 
the, the, the shuttle ship between Earth and Mars might be from something different. I can't remember if I'd heard it from that or if that was something that uh, Buzz Aldrin maybe had been talking about at one point. But it seems pretty clear that they've got, you know, their big, super fancy ship up there that has some kind of whiz-bangy propulsion system on it. Uh, by which I mean some kind of ion drive. But anyway, mm-hmm. point being, th- that that all came from uh, a lot of proposed mission plans and how you get there. But uh, well, there was a little bit of mixing and matching, and I can't actually remember why we got started talking about this. Well, we're, t- we're just talking about how they got there and, and things like that. This does remind me of something you asked, Nathan, is, um, you know, is this plausible or, or what have you or something like that. But oh, yeah, yeah, it reminds yeah, right. me of a story from the Apollo program. I think and, and if you want to read about some really fascinating stuff about the Apollo program, um, Moon Dust is a great book in which this guy, this journalist tracks down all of the men who've walked on the moon and kind of tracks how they've changed afterwards what their impressions were, tells their stories, and it's really, really good. I don't remember if this is from Moon Dust or if it's from another source. I forget where, but there were some scientists that weren't they weren't sure what the surface of the moon really was like. And there's debate over, you know, was it rock, was it dust? If it was dust, how far down did the dust go? And there was a worry that once they landed, they would not be able to take off. And the astronauts knew this going into it. Well, they were concerned the entire ship might get swallowed up. Yeah, and so they, supposedly, I think Nixon had, you know, he had two speeches prepared, one for a successful landing and one for if they lost everybody. Yeah, I've read ready the second to go. speech. Yeah, and so it, it, when you read about the early space, pro- I mean, the space, pro- space, uh, space program in the 60s, they were risking a lot in, in facing a lot of unknowns. And I think when you're talking about going to Mars, you'd be going back to that risk-taking mindset. So there would be, I mean, well, even today, some of the proposed plans are, let's just send some people out there and leave them there for three years, and then they'll die. <laughs> some people have seriously proposed stuff like that. You know, I don't well, think that would ever happen. There have been one-way trips. I don't know if they've proposed, you know, letting people just die up there after three years. But I think I've read something where there was, it, it wasn't a serious nasa proposal but it was from an independent person but it's like no government would ever allow that because it's you know so out there but yeah getting people back from mars is one of the biggest problems dealing with the orbits and all the the, you know the cost of fuel and all that well it turns out it's really really freaking far away (laughs) yeah it absolutely is um yep anyway as to whether we'd actually go and get someone that we've left on mars if that situation occurred um, let me just say, I hope it never happens to you. Yeah. No, I don't think it will. I'm too tall and <laughs> too badly educated. My eyesight is too bad to be an astronaut. I did check. It's good that you checked. Yeah. Cindy actually applied to be an astronaut. She got a very nice rejection letter. Nice. So, so did Lucas. I think he had it framed. Uh, I don't know what happened to Cindy. Lucas really, really wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah, I could see that. I applied to be an astronaut, but they escorted me from the building pretty quickly, so I don't think... They're like, sir, 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 please, this is a Taco Bell. Stop yelling at this man, and this is a Taco Bell. Can't you read the sign? No shirts, no shoes, no service. And I said, I don't, frankly, I don't see what that has to do with going into space. You idiots! 
And, uh, you know, I can't go there for the next 10 years, so that's cool. It's not like they keep your picture up on the wall. You can go. You can go back. No, they, they, they spray painted my picture on the wall of this place. And by they, I mean I did yeah. the next day. So they know. They know. They know. They also identify you by the rug life tattoo on your forehead. <laughs> uh, incidentally, Nathan, because I found a... Um, going back to the sexism thing. Yes. There's a part where later in the story where Mindy Venkat's like, you know, why are you talking like that? Like, you know, don't be a smart ass or, you know, be a smart ass to a guy seven levels above your job at your company. See how that works out. And she's like, oh, no, I might lose my job as an interplanetary voyeur. I guess I'd have to use my master's degree for something else. (laughs) I I remember when you were shy. I'm space paparazzi now. So they, you know, she gets a little bit of growth where she becomes self-assertive and whatever. Yeah, again, it's it's mostly the other... The men in the story are written more sexistly than is required, I think. Again, I take issue with sexist because that's certain times, yes, but I think it's more of a broy locker room kind of thing where it's it's not doesn't mean it's not I mean, sexist just because it's no, broy locker that. room. Yeah, but I think that you're you're making a pretty hefty accusation, and like, yeah, it's unthinkingly and it's there's still some parts that are a little sexist but when you're saying that literally every single um interaction is sexist and pejorative towards women i fundamentally disagree with that and i think that's unfair well i don't know that was my overwhelming impression when i was reading the books and it was enough to take me out of it and cause me to start taking notes on it so obviously it was a big issue for nathan uh it wasn't as big an issue for george was as big an issue for me um just for myself, I think that maybe it didn't strike me quite as much because in my experience working in aerospace, which I have done, there's it's still very dominated by men. Uh, and, you know, that has certain consequences in the type of interactions that go on. Not that I uh not that, that condones anything, I'm just saying. No, I, yeah, I don't disagree like, with you. I'm just saying, if we're writing, I don't no, know, if no, we're writing fiction I'm... about, you know, the near or far future, in which we have man missions to Mars, you'd hope there'd be a little more. I don't know. Agreed. Agreed. Anyway, you bugged me. You'd hope that. You'd hope that now, it, realistically. It didn't, it didn't but... scuttle the whole book for me, but it did bother me enough to comment on it. Yeah. No, sure. That's... It's good that you mentioned it because I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there who feel who felt the exact same way. And it's, it's, whereas George and I went straight past. And and we'd like to turn to them now. Um, if you've got our number, we'd like you to call in. I uh, can, can we get a call on number because that would be fun. It's also yeah, it's flashing. It's flashing on your screen right now. Call in. There are uh, operators are waiting to take your call. It's also I'm, I'm going to run out and buy a soundboard. <laughs> It's possible that I'm more sensitive to this. I mean, I'm clearly more sensitive to it um, than you two are at the moment, but possibly because, uh, well, my wife very briefly worked as a subcontractor for NASA, um, and she's she's currently working in a very in an industry that's incredibly dominated by like yeah, middle-aged white dudes. Like it's it's a good old boys club, and that is very true about that industry. <laughs> she's not in that. She was there for a couple months, but uh, in the industry that she's in now, it's it's very much the same. And I guess part of me is just like, uh, I want better things in the work 
zone, the work zone. You know, workplace. I want, yeah. I want, I want things to be better for women in tech, for partially altruistic and partially selfish reasons. Yeah. Well, I mean, I clearly don't want that. And no, uh, I know, and it's because so. You know, I mean, that's where I'm coming from on this issue. And so I totally understand that, George. All viewpoints are equally valid. Um, well, well no, I think that mine is more valid because... Mm, I can't uh, argue with you because I believe you. Yours is more valid because that's your belief and you hold it. So I'll, I'll, I'll take my answer off the air, by the way. Okay. All right, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I, got, I got a question. So Caller, that, be, um, that being said, you know... Yes. When you see a book like this that, you know, is kind of basically, it's pretty clearly written at the reading level for, you know, wide distribution, made accessible to people, you know, talked up a lot, it moves fast, it's a fun read. I mean, the movie rights were made or snapped up pretty quickly after it hit the bestseller list. And when you're putting together something, a book kind of in that style, is there a need to do better in portraying women involved in uh, technical professions? Well, he, you, uh, in the sense, is there a moral obligation? Uh, or do you mean... Moral <laughs> obligation might be a little bit strong, but, you know. Well, here's... And this goes, like... Is, is there some... Oh, sure. Let's, let's say moral obligation. Is there, you know... Is there a reason why you should why we should expect people to go the extra mile in that with with respect to that? I think it's important to portray diverse you know d diversity multitudes life as it is, and there is a responsibility on the part of the writer, um, and that's one of the reasons why I am disagreeing with Nathan's point as to the degree of it perhaps not disagreeing that there's some elements that are a little troubling there i just disagree maybe at the volume because and it's also i want to make it clear all joking aside that i do try to be mindful of these things when i'm reading stuff it's something that i do think about and so like it's not something i'm not unsensitive to or insensitive to it's just that i honestly you know there were a couple parts where i was like well that's kind of dumb or you know that's you know that's not great and i moved on from it but i don't think it was Obviously, Nathan really, and I disagree to the degree of it, but that's... Yeah. It didn't get your hackles up. No. Um, and, you know, Nathan and I can, you know, we've already talked about why that is. But I would say that, yes, you've got, you do have an obligation to talk about how things, you know, you know, because even, even if aerospace is primarily a, you know, white male dominated space, there are still people there who are women, who are people of color and... Um, anything else that you'd see represented anywhere else. So you should represent your uh, space. That I, mean, I mean, I mean, saying the one basically is saying the other, I think. I mean, the fact that it's so heavily skewed in one direction, I think, is pretty clear to everyone involved. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily intentional on their part, but, you know, the environment does contribute to it. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't want to imply that I think that everyone, uh, that every every book has to only portray, you know, super diverse, postmodernist, feminist, egalitarian societies. Uh, well, I don't think anyone took that as your implication. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, uh, granted, it is probably, as you pointed out, realistic that there would be some sexism and old boys club-ishness in, within NASA or any of these things. But yeah, I, I don't know. 
I think every 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 book takes a stand one way or the other, uh, or or says something one way or the other, whether uh, means to or not. And so I think. I mean, when you say one way or another, do you view it as a binary position? No, no. In in some way, whether whether consciously or not, every book tends to at least reflect to some degree some form some form of worldview. It is not written by robots, you know. And while we have a choice in what sort of worldview we espouse in our or portray or espouse in our fiction, then you know we don't necessarily always have to go with fair solitude uh, as to current. Structure yeah, and my point being verisimilitude would, to me, there's no industry that, I mean, verisimilitude would imply that you are showing different people there because there's no place, even if it's dominated, that's 100% homogenistic unless you're talking about like the KKK or something, you know? Yeah. No, and I do think that they, it does look like he made an effort to include, you know, an Indian guy and, you know, some women and a nerdy guy not named Mitch. Yeah, I think demographically yeah. it's probably pretty close to fairly close to the actuality of NASA, although I don't know. I feel like there's no. it might still be more this 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 might actually be more male dominated than the reality of NASA. And, and and the fact is that this is At a this near point, future that's entirely book. possible, especially someplace, you know, like JPL or somewhere one of the uh yeah. bigger name sites. Or names yeah. for that matter. And as a near future book, he did have the option of fudging it. So say yeah, this, that's, that's... Th- th- hypothetically, say this was the book as presented is the current composition of, you know, NASA. He had the ability to make the people whoever he wanted. And this yeah. is what he chose. That's kind of, that's kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about worldview and, you know, the options. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I just, um, I'm apparently lower on blood sugar and can't really. No, no, I was just trying to things. I was trying to expand on that. Yeah, no, um, I, thank you for that, George. Um, and I just said, um, without really having anything to say. So anyone can pick up the slack from me. Uh, ratings? All right. Or is that premature? Did we premature. have anything else we wanted to hit on? Uh, yeah, I was going to say anything. Anyone else? Because we're getting to, we're getting to a good three quarters of an hour. That's yeah. Um, uh, there's some fun, you know, th- there's a little bit of humor in the book. Like there's this whole thing about how the commander... He, Watley had access to the commander's, uh, you know, digital media libraries, which were almost entirely 70s. the best hits from the, from the seventies disco particular and, and also seventies sitcoms, yeah. which was a funny gag once. It wasn't necessarily a funny gag repeated. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I think, I think his biggest problem was he was trying with a lot of this stuff is that his jokes, I think a lot of what came off as, sexist was attempts at humor that fell flat because the best humor was when he was just kind of responding to the situation with kind of like a oh well guess i'll have to try this or you know it stinks in here because i have to use my own poop as fertilizer like these are kind of funny things but when he was actually when the writer was actually trying to make actual jokes through the interactions of the people at, at, at nasa or this repeated harping on three's company or you know kind of these broy um Asides, bro. Asides, those were, I think, just kind of misguided and didn't really work out. George and, and is a huge funny. Three's Company fan, to be fair. Yeah, he, I know he was very upset when he uh, knocked the show. I I only watch it for John Ritter, and I think that everyone else on the show could have just disappeared. 
and I think it was should have just been Three's Company starring John Ritter as John Ritter, and then just John Ritter on a stage just talking about whatever came to mind. And I would have a lot of people that. on that show did disappear. <laughs> Including, sadly, John Ritter. It's tragic. It is tragic. We still got Susan Sarandon and the Thighmaster, though, so that's good. True. So, Hooray! So. Ratings. But, yeah, I think... Sorry, go on, George. That was one of the big problems for me was that, you know, the humor was a little forced. Yeah. Um, and I think, Nathan, is it fair to say that's where a lot of the sexism was coming from? Do you think that was going for humor? Like, yeah. that was him going for humor? It was, that's the part that, that hit me. It was, it was like specifically that. often Mark going for humor, not even Andy Weir going for humor. Well, it was Mark writing, or Andy writing Mark going for humor that really fell flat. Maybe that was just supposed to be you know, some characterization of this guy. He does have some I flaws. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, maybe I'm giving too much credit. But, yeah, I think most, it was there and in interpersonal relationships or, like, dialogue between the administrators and scientists at NASA that that sort of stuff came in. That stuff was... And did you find the dialogue, do you think the dialogue was trying to be played for laughs? Because that's kind of how I took it when they were ribbing each other. Was that it was played for laughs and it wasn't working? It was it was like robots trying to put on a sketch comedy thing about human office workers. That's what it yeah. read like to me. It was felt like to you. Yeah, it was. And, and, and so the dialogue was this not is his, I will say. Yeah, and this is his first novel too, so that yeah. could also be growing pains and trying to find a human voice. Um, yeah. Joke not really intended there, but yeah, you know, no. I mean, works. overall, I think for for a first novel. It's, uh, especially bootstrapping himself up from, uh, you know, self-publishing. I'm, I'm impressed. Like, I, I enjoyed it. But, okay. Uh, it did, what it did do was it really made me want to go back and read, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars books again, though. I was thinking the same thing. I Peter like, loved those. I love them too. Like, Red Never Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars. They, they seemed so real to me and so, well done that it that's it's hard for me not to take that as a canonical future history of the mars colonization and i know that's weird and strange in a lot of ways but that's like that's the definitive mars story for me no i uh i completely agree i mean the the way it it was the first thing at least for me that i'd encountered with you know that style of science fiction at that scale and i think the the world building that you that Robinson put together over, you know, the entire series is just phenomenal. Yeah, and that's something I never, I've never read them. I remember Peter was, I think you started reading those in middle school. Is that accurate? Yeah, seventh grade. That was uh, Mr. O's class. Yeah, Peter and uh, our friend of the show, Lucas, um, were both very into them. Also kind of Skowski probably too, I seem to recall. That is probably true. Yeah, but these were, you know, a lot of my nerd friend you know friends that i shared nerdy hobbies with and talked about science fiction with as i still do to this day in middle school and and, and so on and yeah you guys were also enthusiastic about it and i never got around to reading them and part of it is at the time and probably still today i'm actually more likely to read a book like you know i'm more likely to watch star wars than i am apollo 13 for example i'm more into space opera than maybe technical hard sci-fi realistic sci-fi you know it's not maybe it, it it's harder but I, I wouldn't say it's apollo 13 hard well no i've heard, some, I've heard the characterizations no, are no, great. not that bad there's some and fantastical elements to it like, it's got some good but... yeah sorry 
No go. But I, I think what Nathan's getting at, especially once they start introducing some of the, the nanotechnology kind of stuff, it's it transfers pretty quickly into, you know, all right, this technology is essentially magic and you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it sounds really good. I need to get around to it at some point. And Kim Stanley Robinson's written a lot of other interesting stuff that I've just never gotten to. But I think at that age, it was, I was more into something a little bit more fantastical. Like I was, you know, I read 2001 in those books and I really liked those, but Mars, I just, green Mars, red Mars, etc. I never. It's, it's funny you mentioned, uh, 2001 because what i had just been thinking of was um in the beginning of red mars and this was also kind of prompted by the the sexist conversation um remember there's a scene on the ship over where uh they have the obligatory zero g sex scene and (laughs) the same thing happens in the beginning of um rendezvous with rama yeah the rama and i remember thinking the red mars one was kind of ham-fisted until I read Rama. <laughs> Rama had a lot of weird sex in it. A lot of weird sex. Yeah. I, I must have read a Rama book in like middle school or earlier because I don't I read one of them and I don't remember anything happening the entire time. We just got to this big spaceship, got inside and it was there was something inside and I, I remember nothing about it. I think in middle I school I would have remembered sex. So I read the Rama third one too. first. Garden of Rama. Maybe it was Rama 2. Right yeah, there's Rendezvous with Rama on the second one, which is like R- Rendezvous Rama 2, Electric two. Boogaloo. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, you should definitely read Kim Stanley Robinson. I mean to read The Years yeah. of Rights and Salts. I recently read 2312. Uh, oh, what'd you think of that? I liked it. I liked it. Um, the weird thing is, I read really fast and I don't retain a lot of stuff. I actually just had to Google 2312 to figure out what that book was, even though I read it maybe three months ago. Is that the most ago. recent one that came out? Yeah, yeah. Uh, mid that's May 2012. The, that's the Kim Stanley Robinson book I've been most interested in reading. Actually, you should read the, it. It's very. Interesting. It sounded really it's cool. an interesting. Change from a lot of the stuff he's done because yeah. it's really kind of far future, like it's not super far, but it's post well, post the Mars stuff. It's like a couple hundred years after that. Yeah, I mean it's 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 sufficiently far enough out that when you take a look at all the different technology they're playing around with, it re- what I was going to say was it reads more like. Some of the culture novels, tran- tra- transhumany kind of stuff that gets written nowadays, like the culture novels a little bit, a little bit like uh, some of Charles Strauss's. Yeah, stuff. yeah, it's post singularity. Like it's it's early. It's like earlier on the time stream than post singularity stuff or culture stuff, but it's got the same DNA. I, I, I see where you're coming at that. Yeah, yeah, especially with some of the genetic engineering they're doing in that one. Yeah, and they're like, oh, let's hop to the next moon over, you know, for. Well, and they're all they're all flying around in like custom tailored asteroid colonies slash yeah, spaceships. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, kind of going back to my original point or whatever, I don't know, was that the Martian has been on my radar for a while because, like I said in our previous show, um, I have a friend who reviewed it for uh, the AV Club, and it was a positive review and. I'd heard it one or two other places mentioned positively, but until Peter had mentioned it, that we should read it, it was one of those books where I was like, oh, that sounds interesting, but I was much less likely to read it in favor of, you know, something post-apocalyptic or something with lasers yeah. or, I, no. I tend to like, I don't know, maybe the promise of a little bit more action, but I still, I, in spite of that, I, I would have this. said the same thing about, uh, for me, about um, Nosferatu. Oh. Nosferatu, yeah. Yeah, yeah, probably for me as well. Who picked that? Was that me or you? 
That was you, Nathan, was it? wasn't it? Was it me? I don't know. Uh, it might have been me. It's blank on the book club chart. If George was in mobility, then it had to be you, right? Yeah, I guess so. It was me. After Interesting. Wasp Factory, which we never discussed. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, oh. Um, we should just read a culture book at some point. We should. Uh, one thing, Edge of Tomorrow is out. Apparently people like it. I don't know. Yeah, a lot of people Oh, I was, was going to mention that that had uh, come out since we had... We have to see it. Sort of talked about yeah, that. Well, we did, yeah, we did. We we did. We did. We did talk not about record that it. One. That was not recorded. That predated this. This was on a G chat somewhere. That was yeah. a uh, a lexicological discussion. Yeah. <laughs> that might not be the right word. Uh, anyway, yes. Although yes. I think we all know that the proper title for that movie is "All You Need Is Kill." All you need is kill. All you need. Kill is, is all you kill. need. In movies this summer, I mean, that's so much better than. Watch Tom Cruise is an old man with Emily Blunt falling into Europe on the edge of your seats. It's the edge of tomorrow. The only stupider uh, movie name than the edge of tomorrow is Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. That is so terrible. It's not DC. It's what happens when you treat Zack Snyder like an adult and give him money. It's a terrible idea. Well, I think DC as a company should just fold up and make kids' cartoons, and everyone would be happy. Agreed. Uh, we should do ratings for the book club. Yeah, it's I was gonna say we're we're out of uh, we're out of rope here. We've we are out of time. It's all the time we have for today, kids. It is though. So callers, um, we'll take your call next show. Uh, thanks for calling. Pre-recorded call is red. We'll, we'll be back after a word from our sponsors. <laughs> rhubarb pie, rhubarb pie. I love a little bit. So that's a Prairie Home Companion joke we're... for all you Prairie Home Companion be heads bop, out there. Rhubarb pie. Thank you for actually doing it correctly, because I haven't listened to that show in years. Anyways, enough of this terrible joke-making, Peter. Yes. Yes, all right. Do the honors. So, ratings. i got to start this one off, huh? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, He says, realizing he shouldn't be saying um. I'm going to give this one a... Three and a half out of five Mars Rocks. Mars Rocks. I'm going to give it four out of five flash-dried Mars-frozen turd-farmed potatoes. Damn it, I was going to do potatoes. Turns Too out, quick! Also Mars Rocks. Same thing. <laughs> Nathan, you could give it Three's Company out of Three's Company. I can't now because... Said it first. <laughs> 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 um, ah, hmm. I give it uh, six out of ten potentially deadly hydrogen incidents. Nice, nice, good choice. I like that. It is good. And Shotgun hydrogen uh, always trying to kill me. So our ratings are properly logged by our secretary, Mister Nathan Edwards. Indeed. And uh, if you join us next time, we'll read every single manga volume of Attack on Titan and report the results. <laughs> the results long. are none of us can read Japanese. No, those are they're in English. Oh, well, not all of them. Well, all the English ones, all the translated ones. If I, I play the wish. theme song from the beginning of that show on repeat, how many times do you think I'll make it through the theme song before I make it through the comics? <laughs> 475. I hope so, because that song is awesome. I actually wish we'd read all of those, but we won't. Uh, Side note, um, we probably shouldn't use this for the actual episode. 
But he was up there for what, like 700 days, 1,000 days, something crazy like that? I think it's around... I think it was 400-something. Four or five at most, yeah. No, I think... Didn't they? Wasn't it? Didn't it end up being like seven thousand? Because he or seven hundred? Because he spent a few like hundred days after they figured out the plan. Prepare. Yeah, he was re- he was he was reaching to get enough food to make it to four hundred. He was going to make it seven. I can tell you in about two seconds. And by the way, this is they had they had another episode. six months of flight on the ship. I feel back, like it was like seven hundred eighty something. It's not seven hundred eighty. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'll have it to you in two seconds. But my point is that he jerked off a lot into the potato beds. <laughs> oh, that's too good. That's too good not to. Uh, not to. We're we're leaving that in. Do not eat those potatoes. That's, but he did. Well, he did. He look. He was he already. Could, he couldn't. He have was crapping it. into the fertilizer. He was crapping into the fertilizer. That's way worse. To be fair, most of them were exposed to vacuum, which should kill lots of stuff. I mean, I don't know. Time also kills sperm. It's not like he was. It was a closed system. It's not like. Yeah. He generated. It's not that bad. Yeah, Anyways, exactly. it was 549 days. Okay, 549 days. There's a long time. I'm just saying. And then um, it'll be another 211 days before he gets back to Earth from that, by the way. Uh, th- that's the problem. It's the end of the book with him in space, you know, being recovered, and it's just end. Like, he would have been messed up coming back to Earth. What would the radiation effect had on him? Yeah. You know, what would he have been like? Maybe he was so annoying because he was like mentally <laughs> fried. <laughs> screwed up. I don't from know. The cosmic radiation. I'd like to see a really, really psychological, tortured novel about that, you know, his life after this. The but... sequel is just crewmen's logs from everyone else on the ship on the way back dealing with him. It makes me want to look up what the radiation levels on the surface of Mars are actually like. Dealing with how bad he smells. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, listeners. Bad. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter. I am George Chimples, and I am at the Chimples. I am at Edwards. And he's also Nathan Edwards. Yes. And, and I am a meat popsicle. He is meat popsicle, which you can find at, at meatpopsicle.org.com on the Twitter. Fun fact, there uh, so is that's... a twitter.com slash meatpopsicle. It's somebody named Tack Woon from Melbourne, Australia. I am not that guy. <laughs> allegedly. We we have to put allegedly in there, otherwise he's, we'll get sued. He's, he's stolen my name. Allegedly. Sure. Alright, and that's uh, it for today. Thank you, and call in next time! This has been Lizard People, Dear Readers, a production of Yellow Sonar Industries. Sound engineering is performed by Matthew Quiet of Podcom Services. All music written and performed by Stephen Edwards. Updates and information can be found at lizardpeopledearreaders.com. Contact us on Twitter at drlizardpeople or by email at lizardpeopledearreaders at gmail.com. Very few humans were harmed during the making of this production.